0: Welcome to World War I Centennial News. It's about World War I then, what was happening 100 years ago this week, and it's about World War I now. News and updates about the centennial and the commemoration. Today is October 18, 2017, and our guests this week are Mike Schuster from the Great War Project blog, Tim Bailey, Director of Education at the Gilder Lehrman Institute of American History. Kenneth Clark, President and CEO of the Pritzker Military Museum and Library, and Michael O'Neill with Robert Zak from the 100 Cities, 100 Memorials Project in Dayton, Ohio, sponsored by the League of World War I Aviation Historians. World War I Centennial News is brought to you by the U.S. World War I Centennial Commission and the Pritzker Military Museum and Library. I'm Tao Mayer, the Chief Technologist for the Commission, and your host. Welcome to the show. Our theme this week is about hunkering down in the midst of a threat. America has declared its martial intent on one half of the world at war. And now it must take both an offensive and a defensive posture though U-boats are an endless threat on the seas. There's little chance that the Kaiser would land an army in the Chesapeake Bay, but there are plenty of threats to worry about, and the Wilson administration does. One hundred years ago this week, on October 14th, Wilson signs the Trading with the Enemy Act into law. Today, many aspects of this law would be unthinkable Including the appointment of an alien property custodian, empowered to seize the assets of immigrant businesses and not just mom and pop outfits, but national brands. So let's jump into the Wayback Machine and see how this plays out starting 100 years ago this week. <laughs> Welcome to mid-October 1917. President Wilson has just signed the Trading with the Enemy Act into law, giving him new broad powers relating to foreign trade. The intent is that no American trade aids or benefits Germany or its allies in any way. Those allies include Austria-Hungary, Bulgaria, and Turkey, even though America has not actually declared war with those nations. Under the Act... German-owned property in the U.S. can be seized. And, as enemy property, German-owned patents can be used without royalty, including, for example, the German-owned Bayer Company's patented aspirin pills. Treasury Secretary McAdoo gets extensive powers to control the exchange of gold and securities between the U.S. and foreign countries. Meanwhile, the Postmaster General has total censorship over the non-English language press as well as total control over international communications by telegraph. Interestingly, unlike many of the other wartime acts, the Trading with the Enemy Act will not be repealed after the war and will have lasting impact into the 21st century. As one reads the law, it starts by defining who is an enemy. In essence, and simply put, an enemy is someone that we've declared war on, and that's simple and makes sense. But the president can also declare any other nation and the citizens of that nation enemies by proclamation. In other words, the friends of my enemy are also my enemy. And the act reaches deep. For example, if you're a German immigrant living in the United States for 20 years, and you've built a life, a business, and a family— but you yourself are not an American citizen, well, then you're an enemy. Which leads to another expanded definition, ally of the enemy, which includes any individual or a partnership or group of individuals of any nationality inside the enemy's territory, or someone doing business with the enemy, or an ally of the enemy, or a company incorporated in enemy territory, or doing business with an ally of the enemy territory. Well, then you're an enemy too. Given that being declared an enemy allows the U.S. government to seize your property, both real property and intellectual property, the newly formed Office of Alien Property Custodian, headed by an appointee named Mitchell Palmer, gets busy. Within a year, Palmer will manage 30,000 trusts, or seize properties, businesses, or assets worth around a half a billion dollars. Whole industries are affected. For example... The United States Brewers Association and the rest of the overwhelmingly German liquor industry is proclaimed to harbor unpatriotic and pro-German sentiments and is effectively seized. For both history and law buffs interested in the details, we recommend that you read Mitchell Palmer's report to President Wilson called A Detailed Report by the alien property custodian of all the proceedings had by him under the Trading with the Enemy Act during the calendar year of 1918 to the close of business on February 15, 1919. It's not exactly a page-turner, but if you skim the index for ideas of interest, like for me personally, it's about the patents they grabbed and the people they jailed. Reading primary sources instead of historians' interpretations is really kind of fun, and it's really enlightening. A link to the report, and a lot of other related articles are in the podcast notes. Okay, let's move from the business of war. Interesting, but really, let's get into something a little hotter, and a little steamier, and maybe a little more exciting. From the Great War Project blog, we're joined by Mike Schuster, former NPR correspondent and curator for the Great War Project. Mike's post this week is about espionage agent H-21 better known as Mata Hari.
1: Tell us the story, Mike. Mike Yuteo, the headline reads, A spy faces the firing squad. Mata Hari executed by the French. She worked all sides. This is special to the Great War Project. This is the story of the fabled female spy Mata Hari. She was a professional dancer and mistress who first became a spy for France during World War I. Suspected of being a double agent, she was executed in France on October 15th, a century ago. Mata Hari was Dutch-born, but she spied for all sides, including the Germans. Her real name was Margarete Gertrude de Zella, and she had been an exotic dancer and courtesan in France since she was 27 years old. According to several accounts of her life, she quickly became well-known in Paris, bringing a carefree, provocative style to the stage in her act which attracted wide acclaim. The most celebrated portion of her act was her progressive shedding of clothing until she wore just a jeweled bra and some ornaments. But her dancing career went into decline after 1912. After the war broke out, she soon became of interest to both sides, given that her nationality was not one of the belligerents. In November, 1916, she was traveling by steamer from Spain when her ship called at the British port of Falmouth, there, she was arrested and brought to London, where she was interrogated at length by the assistant commissioner at New Scotland Yard in charge of counter-espionage. She eventually admitted to working for the Deuxième Bureau, the French Secret Service. She was then released. In late 1916, Mata Hari traveled to Madrid, where she met with the German military attaché. During this period, she apparently offered to share French secrets with Germany in exchange for money. In January 1917, a German espionage officer transmitted radio messages to Berlin describing the helpful activities of a German spy codenamed H21, whose biography so closely matched Matahari's that it was patently obvious Agent H21 could only be Matahari. The Duseam Bureau intercepted the messages and, from the information it contained, identified H21 as Matahari. The messages were in a code that German intelligence knew had already been broken by the French, leading to the conclusion that the messages were contrived to have Mata Hari arrested. On 13 February 1917, she was arrested in a hotel room in Paris. She was put on trial on 24 July, accused of spying for Germany. It was alleged at her trial that she consequently caused the death of at least 50,000 soldiers. Found guilty, her execution was carried out on October 15th, a century ago. At the time of her execution, the British newspaper The Times wrote, Matahari, the dancer, was shot this morning. She was arrested in Paris in February and sentenced to death by court martial last July for espionage and giving information to the enemy. The story of Matahari remains the best-known espionage story of World War I. And that's the story this week from the Great War Project.
0: Thank you, Mike. That was Mike Schuster from the Great War Project blog. Today, in our War in the Sky segment, we're leafing through a current issue of the Aviation and Aeronautical Engineering magazine. Now, it's not the lead articles that draw attention. Of course, it sets the mood of the industry with excited talk about the $640 million congressional appropriation aimed at the aircraft manufacturing industry. But instead, we're exploring the back of the magazine, where the ads are. There's some great stuff here. Like the one-third page ad from the Kyle Smith Aircraft Company from Wheeling, West Virginia. They'll sell you a two-seater biplane with a land model for $3,000 and for an extra $100, pontoons to land on water. Billy Brock and Al Boshek from the Flint Aircraft Company in Michigan will teach you how to fly so that you can qualify for military examinations as a pilot or as a mechanic, or the Foxborough Company of Massachusetts, who offers a fine-looking airspeed indicator, noting in their sales pitch, quote, accurately indicates the relative wind pressure, the force that holds the plane in the air. (laughs) You're really going to want to have one of those. Then I stumble across a genuine mystery. The innovative and visionary Buck Aircraft and Munitions Company of Denver, Colorado, who places a one quarter page editorial style ad. You know, the kind of ad that today you'd have to have a little flag on it that says advertising so you don't think of it as part of the magazine? Well, the headline reads, The Automatic Aerial Torpedo. And the story reads, Built on the Buck Aerial Torpedo patent, the aircraft is equipped with a 50-horsepower motor and designed to carry explosives in the air to any distance up to 30 miles. A time-controlled release drops the torpedo at any distance. The entire equipment is automatic and is launched from a compressed air catapult mounted on a motor truck, the engine of which furnishes the air for the catapult. The torpedo can be fired at any range and at any degree of the compass. Well, this almost sounds like a flying torpedo drone, but that doesn't make sense in 1917. So, of course, I chased down the patent that they mention. And sure enough, U.S. Patent One Three Eight Eight Nine Three Two for an aerial torpedo was filed by Hugo Centerwall of Brooklyn, New York on July 27, 1916. And here's the kicker. The patent talks about an electric automated guidance steering mechanism with a smart sight. Well, I could have spent the rest of the night chasing this down, but both I and the segment have run out of time. So I'm going to have to drop the mystery here about the Buck Aircraft and Munitions Company of Denver, Colorado, with their catapult-launched, maybe unmanned, guided aerial missile torpedo from 1916, which happens to pop up in an aerospace engineering magazine 100 years ago, in The Great War in the Sky. There are links in the podcast notes to the ad and to the patent. And if any of our intrepid listeners learn more about these guys and their aerial torpedo, please get in touch with us through the contact link at ww one ccorg There's a fascinating story here somewhere. Well, we love that you listen to us, but if you'd like to watch video about World War I, go see our friends at The Great War Channel on YouTube. Here's Indy Nidell, the show's host. Hello,
2: World War I Centennial News listeners. This is Indy Neidell, host of the Great War YouTube channel. American soldiers are dying in combat, and the Bolsheviks seize control in Russia as autumn sets in across Europe. Join us for a new episode of the Great War every Thursday by subscribing to our YouTube channel and liking us on Facebook. See you soon.
0: New episodes this week include Operation Albion, Passchendaele Drowns in Mud. Another one, the edge of the abyss, mountain warfare on the Italian front. And finally, Brazil in World War I, the South American ally. Follow the link in the podcast notes or search for The Great War on YouTube. We've moved forward in time to the present. Welcome to World War I Centennial News Now. This part of the program is not about history, but about how the centennial of the war that changed the world is being commemorated today. This week, we're leading off with our education section. You know, bringing the lessons of World War I into the classroom is one of the Commission's prime goals. And with the help of a generous $50,000 grant from the American Legion, we're kicking off a six-city teaching tour called Teaching Literacy Through History. The program's being produced by the Gilder Lehrman Institute of American History, the nation's leading American history organization dedicated to K-12 through education. This exciting project is kicking off this month, and with us today to tell us more about it is Tim Bailey, Director of Education at the Gilder Lehrman Institute. Welcome, Tim.
2: Hi, Farrell. It's a pleasure.
0: Tim, let's start with the Gilder Lehrman Institute. Tell us a bit more about it.
2: Yeah, the Gilder Lehrman Institute has been uh, in existence since 1994 with a mission to spread the joy and love and pursuit of American history in classrooms throughout the country. We work with K 12 teachers through a a variety of programs. Um, Probably one of the best known programs we're involved with right now is our Hamilton Education Plan. The Hamilton Education Program is a program that um, is reaching Title I students in the cities that the Hamilton, the musical, is traveling to. We're working right now in New York, Chicago. We've been to San Francisco. And right now, as the show is in Los Angeles, uh, our program is is there as well. The, uh, The goal of the program is to reach a quarter of a million students over the next five years of the show uh, traveling the country. So it's, a, it's a, a really impactful effort, I think, that we're having. And this teaching literacy through history program that's behind uh, what we're doing with uh, World War I and the Centennial Commission is also the grounds for what we're doing with uh, Hamilton the Musical.
0: Now, about the World War I program, what cities are you going to?
2: Well, let's see. On October 21st, that's our first date uh, for the program. We're going to be in Louisville, Kentucky. Then uh, November 4th in Anchorage, Alaska. December 4th, we're in Albuquerque, New Mexico. Uh, March 6th, we'll be in San Diego, California. Uh, March 17th, we'll be in Detroit, Michigan. And then we're wrapping up in the spring of 2018 in Providence, Rhode Island.
0: So Tim, if I'm a teacher, what's my experience going to be? And what am I going to walk away with? So
2: the program actually was modeled on something that we did here in New York last year. We had a program that the Centennial Commission sponsored, and we invited Professor Ken Jackson to come speak about World War I. It's a day-long program, absolutely free for any teacher that signs up to, to attend. And what they get is in the morning, we have a noted historian speaking on World War I. And it's a lecture discussion format. It's, a, it's not just a stand and deliver. The scholars are very good at engaging the teachers in a dialogue about World War I. And, you know, some of the aspects they see is in, in teaching the topic. And then after lunch, we have one of our master teacher fellows who works uh, for the institute take the teachers through uh, pedagogical strategies that are designed to take the content that they learned in the morning. And take that into the classroom. What are some sounds, uh, strategies for teaching the topic? What are some approaches that you can use with your students that are engaging that are all built around primary sources? That's the, really the cornerstone of the Institute is its use of primary sources in the classroom and having teachers use those sources. You know, one of the, the reasons that teachers don't use primary sources uh, often is because they're, the students are intimidated by the language or the Uh, the the complexity of the text, and that's where our teaching literacy through history approach comes in, in that we uh, give the teachers tools that they can work with the students in order to unlock that text, in order to do good textual analysis and then use that in uh, argumentative writing and being able to produce pieces in their class that are based on not just uh, someone's commentary. I know. You, I noted uh, earlier that you talked about, you know, using primary sources, reading them. How interesting they can be, absolutely. And so the idea is to uh, help students unlock those pieces so that then they can use them in their own analysis and in their own writing. So the teachers walk away with not only having this, uh, this, you know, great experience with a scholar in the morning, but also then lesson plans and uh, actual pieces that they can teach in the classroom when they leave in the afternoon.
0: Now, I know this program is going to be popular with teachers. What do they need to do to qualify, and how do they sign up?
2: If they're near any of these cities that the program is going to be in, all they need to do is they contact us, the education department, at gilderlehrman.org. They can get in touch with us to see if we have spots available. And if you're not in one of these cities that we're in right now, you should still contact us. We have a program called the Affiliate Schools Program. It's a free program. Any school can sign up for it. Uh, Any teacher can create an account for their school, and what that does is give them free access to everything in our website. It Also, we have created a number of traveling exhibitions. We have 10 of them. A brand new one that we just rolled out is our World War I exhibition, with, of course, the centennial. And that can come to your school for free. We will ship it to you. You keep it for a number of weeks, and then put it back in the container and ship it back, and we pay for the shipping. So it's that kind of outreach that you can get even if you're not in one of those cities.
0: Tim, thank you.
2: No, you're welcome.
0: Hopefully we can find additional funding to take this wonderful program to more cities and to more teachers around the country. We look forward to having you back on the show to tell us how the tour went. Thanks again.
2: Absolutely. It my pleasure.
0: That was Tim Bailey, Director of Education for the Gilder Lehrman Institute of American History. We have a link about the program and where to sign up in the podcast notes. And we have more news about teaching World War I. The newest education newsletter from the World War I Centennial Commission and the National World War I Museum and Memorial just came out. Issue 9 is Americans All, and it focuses on the diversity of those who served and participated in the war that changed the world. This issue includes resources for teaching about Puerto Rican laborers, the Harlem Hellfighters, Native Americans in the Red Cross, American foreign-born doughboys, and how World War I sparked the gay rights movement. Go to our new education website at one ccorg edu, all lowercase, where you can link to and sign up for the education newsletter and connect with the commission's education program, or follow the link in the podcast notes. And now for our feature, Speaking World War I where we explore today's words and phrases that are rooted in the war. All right, you maggot. What are you doing sitting on your duff? Get on your feet before I drag you up by your short hairs. Thank you, Gunny. It's good to have you back on the show. But what was Gunny actually saying? Is short hairs a vulgar phrase referring to the nether regions? Well, actually not. It refers to an area of the body quite a bit north. The short hairs in question are those little hairs on the back of the neck, a phrase that seems to have first been used in the military with examples from the Brits dating back to the 1890s and the colonial occupation in India. They were referred to in Rudyard Kipling's Indian Tales. The phrase popularized and spread during the First World War, but then took a turn south during the Second World War, becoming the short and curlies and assuming its more vulgar variation by the short hairs, not how you want to be caught, and this week's phrase for Speaking World War I. See the podcast notes to learn more. Welcome to our 100 Cities, 100 Memorials segment about our $200,000 matching grant challenge to rescue and focus on our local World War I memorials. Last month, we announced the first 50 World War I centennial memorials. Now we're full tilt into Round 2, which includes all the projects that have not received a grant from Round 1 and all the new projects that are joining the program. Round 2 applications can be submitted until January 15, 2018. Then the selection committee goes back into its very difficult process of selecting the second 50 awardees. Without exception, every project submitted is amazing. Actually, you already know that. You've been hearing Project Profiles on the podcast for months now, and not all the projects you've learned about here are among the first 50 awardees. But before we jump into this week's profile, we have a special treat. Kenneth Clark, the CEO and President of the Pritzker Military Museum and Library, is joining us. This program is actually Ken's brainchild, and no one can articulate the value and the meaning of 100 Cities, 100 Memorials like he can. Ken and I recently had a chance to sit down in Washington, D.C. and talk about the program. Ken, 100 Cities, 100 Memorials was a concept you initiated. Can you talk to us about how this concept came to mind and how it germinated and grew into what it is today?
3: I guess it was about a year and a half ago, maybe two years ago, when I came up with this idea to find a way for the American centennial of World War I to designate 100 memorials across the country as centennial memorials. I was reading the newspaper about the announcement of the plans for a World War I memorial in Washington, DC. And it got me thinking about the fact that a lot like the Civil War and Spanish-American War, World War I was something that was commemorated on a very local level, historically. The American doughboy who came home and founded the American Legion and joined the Veterans for Foreign Wars, across this country they erected monuments by the thousands to commemorate their service, to commemorate those who didn't come home with them, and to honor not only themselves in a way, but also their family and their town's contribution to the war effort. This was something that everybody was very proud of. The American soldier during World War I went and fought For an ideal of freedom and liberty and they came home victorious having beat our enemy our collective enemy and so the importance of those monuments across the country and the town square and everybody's seen them everybody's seen a doughboy or everybody's seen some kind of world war one monument so the whole concept was to follow in the footsteps of the doughboys they're the ones that came up with this idea to erect these monuments all over the country and why we as a United States World War One Centennial Commission and we as the Pritzker Military Museum and Library couldn't find some way to encourage the renovation and restoration and sometimes even creation of World War One monuments through a program that was officially designed to make sure that it wasn't just the monument in Washington, D.C., it was also connected to communities across this country as well, that those monuments were brought to the forefront and we could have a conversation on a national level that included everywhere. That was where the idea came from. So I took this idea to my boss, Colonel Pritzker, and um, and she got it in like, you know, a matter of four seconds. Uh, it just was a total no-brainer for us. And that's when my work started, talking to commissioners, talking to Dan Dayton, and trying to do everything I could to try to figure out how we're gonna get this done. Uh, another one of the calls I did is I put a call out and coordinated with the American Legion, and very early on got them involved with the project. Uh, they, they got it, but they actually did a national recognition of this whole program at one of their meetings. And so from there, it kind of started becoming more regular and becoming more normal, and then it started branching out, and other people like yourself Started getting involved with it and it became not my idea, not the Doughboy's idea, but it became an idea for us here in the 21st century to really draw attention on a local level. Getting towns and cities and counties and, and, and all sorts of people across the country to kind of rally around their monument, spend the time to take a careful inventory of it. And and then look at what it needs so that it can stand the test of time for the next hundred years and then actually spend the time to submit an application. It's just a wonderful thing. It's just a wonderful thing.
0: Ken, I happen to know that you personally read all the submissions. What's your reaction to them as a whole?
3: Well, amongst the submissions themselves, I mean, they um, run the gamut from, you know, your traditional doughboy statue to giant towers and, and very artistic sculptures that were done. I mean, the neat thing about this program is the awareness that's going to be raised on just the diversity and the artistic nature of all these monuments all over the place. But my biggest impression from that is, is that just how proud these towns are of these monuments all these years later. And, you know, Two things are happening, I think, along these lines. One, many places have already been taking care of their monuments, and yet they're applying. Two, there are states like the state of Illinois is doing a full survey of all the World War I monuments. And I'd like to say that these things are happening in a large part because of the whole 100 Cities, 100 Memorials project. Um, and, and what I'm hoping is that as this project unveils first 50 and then next year unveil the final 50 for the 100, that there's going to be more and more activity around towns and places actually taking ownership of their World War I centennial memorial or monument.
0: Okay, last month we announced the first 50 awardees. What are your thoughts about that?
3: Well, my first thought is, is that there's now a second round of applications that we are accepting for uh, the second 50 that we will name sometime in 2018 to complete the 100. So my biggest thought is is that if there if if somebody wants to compete and try to get one of the 100, uh, there's an opening for people to do so, and I encourage people to go to ww one ccorg and and apply to 100 cities. You know, the application itself is something important in and of itself because those become public records; those go into documentation. Um, the Government is required to keep those records in the archives for all time to come, so i mean there's there's a couple of things just by applying that are are beneficial. Um, my only other thought is if hundred cities hundred memorials sparks a conversation in those hundred towns, and that conversation spills out into the neighboring towns, and then that conversation spills out into the neighboring towns, and there's a little bit more awareness for the guys who went and fought. If we can have that conversation and if we can start talking about the fact that the Mies-Argonne Offensive is the single biggest battle that Americans have ever participated in in its history, not anything during the American Revolution, nothing during the Civil War, it was World War I. If we can get that onto the lips of everyday Americans, school teachers, kids, and, and, and take responsibility for our history and what Americans did, fighting for an ideal, again, fighting for an ideal, liberty freedom, then I think we've done
0: our work. That was Ken Clark, the president and CEO of the Pritzker Military Museum and Library, and the spark that lit the 100 Cities, 100 Memorials program into being. Joining us now to talk about their 100 Cities, 100 Memorials project are Michael O'Neill, president of the League of World War I Aviation Historians, and Robert A. Kasperzak, U.S. Air Force retired. Welcome, gentlemen. Thanks, Dale. Thanks for having us. Gentlemen, your grant application opens with, Even though the U.S. Air Service of World War I was the forerunner of today's Air Force and is a major part of U.S. Air Force history, no monument dedicated to the World War I airmen who served at the front exists today at the National Museum of the United States Air Force. So, Michael, as an aviation historian, can you give us a quick overview about how air power was organized over there in World War I? I certainly, tale. it might become a surprise to most of our listeners that the
4: U.S. had very little in the way of an air service in 1914, although uh, the U.S. was first in flight with the Wright Brothers, of course. By 1917, we still had less than 50 trained military pilots. By the end of the war, we would have more than 14,000 U.S. Air Service trained pilots, and we had uh, airmen also serving with the French, the British, and Italian Air Services. The U.S. Signal Corps at the time, which is... What the Air Service was organized under was part of the U.S. Army. The Navy had their own branch, of course, and um, both of those units would serve in France. The U.S. Air Service and U.S. Naval Air Services serve in France, attached to uh, various um, infantry divisions and armies for purposes of observation, uh, artillery ranging, uh, reconnaissance,
0: and, of course, more well-known fighter groups. Robert, you've been the rally point and the cheerleader for getting this memorial to the World War I aviators built. Why is it important?
5: Um, well, this memorial represents uh, a bridge between the original history of the Air Force, which started back in the early 1900s, and today's Air Force, you know, which is uh, the most powerful Air Force in the world. The National Museum of the Air Force has a memorial park, which has monuments uh, to various organizations and groups that served uh, during World War II, Korea, Vietnam, Iraq, and Persian Gulf, etc. But there was no monument to the early airmen who formed the basis for today's heritage. This monument seeks to remedy that by bridging the gap between World War I and today's Air Force.
0: Well, gentlemen. Your project is a perfect example of amazing, important, and wonderful memorial projects that didn't get selected in the first 50 grant awards, but you're certainly still in the running. You have a video on YouTube about the project that's pretty compelling. Let me play a clip.
1: In 1918, the American Air Service was founded and helped achieve victory in the First World War. 100 years later... The League is seeking donations to build and erect a World War I monument in the Air Force Museum's Memorial Park. It will be dedicated to the air crews and ground personnel who were the foundation of the modern U.S. Air Force.
0: All right, you've been busy gathering support for your project. How's the response been?
5: I think, thus far, uh, uh, pretty good. We started uh, working diligently in July of this year to raise $28,000, which is the cost of the monument's design, construction, and installation. Uh, since that time, we've gathered over $8,000, primarily uh, from our 300-plus league members, organizations such as the Didalians, uh Historical Society, lo- local uh, organizations, libraries, etc. Uh, we're reaching out to corporate sponsors, philanthropists, and soliciting grants from charitable foundations such as the World War I Centennial Commission. Uh, our goal is to dedicate the monument. next September is a, a fitting conclusion to our World War I Centennial activity. So we sure can use whatever help uh, the folks would like to offer.
0: Michael, you have some project milestones coming up. Can you tell us more about them? Sure. Bob sort of just alluded to that. January 1,
4: We have our first payment due for the the monument erection. That's um, half of the $28,000. So we're looking at $14,000 by 1 January. And as Bob pointed out, we're about $8,000 up on that. So we've got about another $6,000 to go. Uh, The remainder is due on 1 June, and we'd like to have the project closed up by then, have the remainder of the $28,000 collected by then. And then on 21 September uh, 2018, during the Dawn Patrol Rendezvous, which is the Air Force Museum's World War I commemorative fly-in. There'll be a public dedication of the memorial on site. We're encouraging folks to donate to the project. They'll be listed on the league's website. Uh, there's a, a nice aviation art print that is for um, some of the top tier donors. And then of course the public dedication is open um, to the
0: donors and of course to the public. Well, as you may know, I'm a big World War I aviation fan. Thank you for taking on the mission. And I don't mean it as a pun, but it is a really monumental task. Well, Thank you for that. We're happy to have the support of the commission.
4: And, and of course, um, the podcast should go a long way to helping us reach our $28,000 goal to have the monument erected.
0: That was Michael O'Neill and Robert A. Kasperzak talking about their project to commemorate the 75,000 that served in the U.S. Air Service, U.S. Naval and U.S. Marine Aviation in World War I, the precursors to the U.S. Air Force. If you're into warbirds, aviation history, and the roots of where it all came from, support these gentlemen and their project. Let them know that their work matters and contribute to their memorial by following the link in the podcast notes. We're going to continue to profile 100 Cities, 100 Memorial projects, not only awardees, but also teams that are continuing on into round two, which is now open for submissions. Learn more about the 100 Cities, 100 Memorials program at wwwone one ccorg forward slash 100 Memorials or by following the link in the podcast notes. In our international report this week, we head to Belgium. There at the Gate Memorial to the Missing on October 11th and then again on the next day at the Tynecott Cemetery, New Zealanders gathered to pay tribute to the Kiwi soldiers who fell at the Battle of Passchendaele. October 12th marks the centenary of an attack remembered as the darkest day in New Zealand post-1840s history. Within a matter of hours, 846 New Zealanders fell in an assault on Bellevue Spur. They were part of a repeated Allied attempt to capture the Passchendaele Ridge, including those wounded and missing. New Zealand troops suffered about 2,700 casualties in this single episode. That's a devastating number of young men for a country who in their 1916 census only counted 1,150,000 people. Speaking during the commemorative event, New Zealand Governor-Minister Dr. Nick Smith said... The losses at Passchendaele were so huge that most New Zealand families have a direct connection to a fallen soldier. The commemoration included a passionate haka, a traditional Maori war cry and dance. We keep mentioning the Battle of Passchendaele, a battle remembered for its mud that swallowed guns and horses and men whole. As the Third Battle of Ypres, the Battle of Passchendaele lasted from July 31st to November 10th, 1917. Two more battles for this small piece of territory are yet to come. Follow the link in the podcast notes to learn more. Now for an exciting update from the States we're heading over to the Great Lakes State. As Michigan's Governor Rick Snyder and Michigan State Senator Rebecca Warren sign the Senate Public Act 97 of 2017 into law, this creates a new commission within the state's Department of Military and Veteran Affairs. The new official Michigan State World War I Centennial Commission is charged with planning, developing, and executing programs and activities to commemorate the centennial of World War I. Read more about the newly official Michigan Commission by following the link in the podcast notes or by visiting www.1cc.org forward slash Michigan, all lowercase. This week in our Articles and Posts segment, where we explore the World War I Centennial Commission's rapidly growing website at one ccorg This week, we're profiling a great article about Madame Marie Curie and her X-ray vehicles with their contribution to World War I battlefield medicine. Ask people to name the most famous historical woman of science, and their answer will likely be Madame Marie Curie. Push further and ask what she did, and they might say it was something related to radioactivity. She actually discovered the radioisotopes radium and polonium. Some might also know that she was the first woman to win a Nobel Prize. Actually, she won two of them. But few will know that Madame Curie was also a major hero of World War I. In fact, a visitor to her Paris laboratory in October of 1917, 100 years ago this month, would not have found her or her radium on the premises. At the time, Curie decided to redirect her scientific skills towards the war effort, not to make weapons but to save lives by applying her science to battlefield medicine. Follow the link in the podcast notes to learn more about how Curie started an emergency medical revolution that's still saving the lives of both soldiers and civilians today. And that brings us to The Buzz, the centennial of World War I this week in social media with Catherine Akey. Catherine, you have a couple of stories you found using hashtag Countdown to Veterans Day to share with us.
6: Hi, Teo. Yes, I do. We'll start with a story that dovetails all the amazing projects we hear about week to week coming out of the 100 Cities 100 Memorials program and actually goes along great with all the education stories we ran today. In New Bedford, Massachusetts, an elementary school was recently rededicated to its namesake. John B. Deval's Elementary School installed a bronze relief of Deval's, which had been languishing in storage for decades. Massachusetts National Guardsmen, accompanied by a Black Hawk helicopter, Humvees, the New Bedford High ROTC, and 200 elementary students all took part in the ceremony. The city of New Bedford was also presented with the three medals Deval's was awarded, the Distinguished Service Cross, the World War I Victory Medal, and the Croix de Guerre. Duvall's was a chaplain and was awarded these accolades for his bravery in rescuing men from no man's land. You can read more about Duvall's and the ceremony at the link in the podcast notes. Finally, this week, I wanted to share a post from the Facebook page World War One Native American Warriors. They shared the story of Choctaw Private Simon Kusher, who was killed in action in 1918. The post includes a moving anecdote from Kusher's great-grandson as he tells the story of the loss of his own teenage son in his travel to private Kusher's grave at the mez Cemetery Memorial. The two losses, almost a 100 years apart, were brought together by this man and birds that appeared in the sky above as he mourned these separate losses. I encourage you to visit the post via the link in the podcast notes to read his story. I found both these stories this week by following the hashtag Countdown to Veterans Day on Facebook. Tag your veteran's story, whether historic or current, to share it with the Countdown to Veterans Day community as we approach November 11th. And that's it this week for The Buzz.
0: Nice story. Thank you, Catherine. And that's all our stories for you this week on World War I Centennial News. But before you flick off your play button, remember, for those of you who listen all the way to the end, we always leave you with some special goodies. So, in closing, we want to thank our guests Mike Schuster and his report on the demise of Matahari, Tim Bailey, telling us about the Teaching Literacy Through History program, Kenneth Clark, President and CEO of the Pritzker Military Museum and Library, Michael O'Neill, and Robert Kasperzak from the 100 Cities, 100 Memorials Project at the National Museum of the U.S. Air Force. Catherine Akey, the Commission's social media director, and also the line producer for the show, and I'm Teo Mayer, your host. The U.S. World War One Centennial Commission was created by Congress to honor, commemorate, and educate about World War One. Our programs are to inspire a national conversation and awareness about World War One. This show is a part of that. We're bringing the lessons of 100 years ago into today's classrooms. We're helping to restore World War One memorials in communities of all sizes across the country. And, of course, we're building America's National World War One Memorial in Washington, D.C. If you like the work that we're doing, please support it with a tax-deductible donation at ww one ccorg forward slash donate, all lowercase. We want to thank the Commission's founding sponsor, the Pritzker Military Museum and Library, for their support. The podcast can be found on our website at www.cc.org forward slash cn. On iTunes and Google Play at WW1 Centennial News. And on Amazon Echo or other Alexa-enabled devices, just say, Alexa, play WW1 Centennial News podcast. Our Twitter and Instagram handles are both at WW1CC, and we're on Facebook at WW1 Centennial. Thank you for joining us, and don't forget to share the stories that you're hearing here today with someone about the war that changed the world. Listen up, you lily livers. Gunny knows the difference between scruff of the neck and short hairs. And no gall darn podcast is going to tell me any different. Now move out. Yes, sir. So long.